Good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm the groups and disciple making pastor here at Genesis, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I'm going to start our morning off with a question, and the question is this What is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? What are the things in life that you value? What are the things in life that are of great worth to you? You know the phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure. We don't all treasure the same things equally. You can tell what a, a person treasures by looking at how they spend their time or their money. Another way to identify what a person treasures and what is of great worth and value to you is by looking at the things you think about a lot or the things that you talk about with your family or your friends. If I were to ask your family and if I were to ask your friends, what is it that you value? What is of great worth to you? How would they answer? Or parents, this would be maybe a good question you could ask your kids. Hey, what is it do you, do you see that mom and dad value and treasure in life? If you were to ask my kids that, uh, they're pretty little. I'm not sure that they would be able to uh, articulate that very clearly, but I'm sure that coffee would be at the top of that list. In fact, I'm certain that one of the things they would say is, Dad has to have his coffee early in the morning before the day gets started. Uh, I mean, it's a Saturday morning yesterday, and I get up, and the kids are just, well, how do they wake up with the energy that they wake up with? And I'm like, honey, I, Daddy needs to have his cup of coffee first. That's of great value to me in the beginning of the morning. What's, what's of great worth or value to you? What brings you joy? What brings you fulfillment? What brings you satisfaction? The answers to these questions reveal your greatest treasure of what, of what is great worth and value. And so for the last several weeks, we've been in a series called The Father Is, and we've just been looking at the attributes of God, several attributes we've been looking at. The Father is good. The Father is love. He is sufficient. He is faithful. Last week, uh, Paul Mumal preached on The Father is Holy, and this morning, I want us to look at the Father is worthy. The Father is worthy. Psalm 145.3 says this, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So the Father is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. Revelation 4.11 says this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. God is worthy. Now, our English word worthy is defined as deserving attention or respect. And the God of the universe, uh, the creator of all things in heaven and earth, is certainly worthy of our attention and respect. But the word worthy, the specific word worthy here in Revelation 4, is a term of measurement. And, and even more specifically, it's the measurement of weight. And it's really best described by an image. The image is this. It's a set of scales. Scales like these are used to measure the weight of something by balancing one object of unknown weight with, the object, with another object of known weight. And so in ancient times, scales were used to measure the weight of an object, but they, they also used scales to measure the worth or the value of an object. For instance, in the process of trading... Merchants needed a way to assess the value of the goods that they were trading. Uh, for example, maybe a nugget of gold. They needed to make sure that they were getting what it was worth. They, so they used scales like this to measure its value and its worth. And so in Revelation 4, when the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, says God is worthy, he places God on one side of the scales. 
And on the other side of the scales, he says that God is worthy of glory and honor and power. In essence, what John is saying is that God is the only person in the universe that is valuable enough or worthy enough to receive glory and honor and power. So our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father and mine, He is worthy. He is infinitely more valuable and of greater worth than anything else. Simply put, God is the greatest treasure in the universe. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but the question I want us to reflect on for the next half hour this morning is this. Is God your greatest treasure? Is God your greatest treasure? Is there anything in your life that's of greater worth or more value to you than God. And so today's message is going to feel a little bit like a trip to the doctor, kind of like we're going to the doctor's office for an annual physical or checkup. Uh, We all love that, don't we? But we're going to go in and we're going to evaluate the health of our hearts a little bit this morning. And just as a doctor will examine several vital signs to determine our health, we're going to examine six areas of our hearts this morning. So it's not going to be a how-to message. This is a message of reflection. We're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to reflect on our own hearts because Jesus models for us what treasuring God really looks like. There was nothing, there was nothing of greater worth or more value to Jesus than his heavenly Father. And so my challenge for you this morning is this. Allow nothing in your life to be of greater worth or more valuable to you than God. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your son, Jesus, and I'm so thankful that he not only uh, demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross, but that he also is our model for life. I'm thankful that Jesus shows us what it looks like to treasure you. As we look at Jesus this morning, Father, I pray that you would help us Help us reflect and search our own hearts. And Father, would you shine your light into our hearts this morning? Would you speak to us this morning? Would you show us any area of our hearts this morning, Lord, where we are not treasuring you above all else? Encourage us where we need encouragement. Strengthen us where we need strengthen. Correct us where we need correction, Lord Jesus. I just pray, Jesus, that you would increase and I would decrease, Lord. We pray that you would have your way in us this morning. I pray this. In your name, Jesus, amen. So we're going to look at several statements of Jesus, and the first statement we're going to look at is in the Gospel of John, and actually, uh, we're probably going to stay in John for most of the morning, so if you want to grab a Bible uh, on one, in one of the seats underneath you or on your phone and turn to the Gospel of John, the first statement we're looking at is in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Now, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, so let me set the scene here. He goes up to Jerusalem for the very first time, uh, in his ministry for the, for the first Passover after his ministry begins. He gets up there and he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves and exchanging money in the temple courts. Well, as you may recall, Jesus does not like this. This really sets him off. It gets him upset and he makes a whip of leather strands and he drives everyone out. And of this intense scene, we only have one quote from Jesus and it's found in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Follow along. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Well, Jesus is obviously upset about what's taking place. I mean, he's overcome with emotion. And he's overcome with the kind of emotion that just moves him to take really an unprecedented and a startling act uh, and step of action here. I mean, could you imagine this making the news today? If a protester causes a scene at a political rally by holding up a sign and shouting a few comments or a few statements, it makes the news. Well, how would we respond to Jesus? He makes a whip and drives people out. Why did Jesus do this? Well, the most simple basic explanation is this. His father was his consuming passion. He cared more about his father than anything else. The writer John makes the note that it was written about Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. That actually is a quote from a messianic psalm, Psalm 69. Let's read it. Psalm 68 and 9 says this about Jesus. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Zeal for your house consumes me. That's what Jesus would have said about himself. That's what the disciples said about Jesus when they witnessed this action. And it wasn't the temple itself. It wasn't the temple building that Jesus was passionate about. It was God. He was passionate about his heavenly Father. He had this consuming passion for his Father. And that's point number one for us today. If you want to write down, you want to take notes. The Father is worthy of your consuming passion. The Father's worthy of our consuming passion. What are you passionate about? What do you get excited about? Maybe it's work or maybe it's a hobby. Maybe for some of you it's exercise or it's sports. Maybe it's the Colts or the Pacers. It's movies or music. Maybe it's traveling. Maybe it's spending time with family and friends. Maybe it's Pokemon Go. Listen, we need to have a talk. Okay, I want you to raise your hand right now. You, you're, you're playing out in the streets in the public. So I want you to raise your hand now if you've played Pokemon Go in the last week. Raise your hand. Okay, come up here. I want to pray for you. Come on. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Kind of. Um, my, wife and I, my wife and I went down on, uh, to downtown Indy. Uh, for a little date uh, last Sunday night, and we walked along the canal, and there were hundreds, hundreds, not dozens, hundreds of people playing Pokemon. I mean, it was like we stepped into a sci-fi movie, and everybody's walking around like this, you know? And we're like, what's going on? They all look like zombies walking around playing this game. At one point, I pick up my phone because we're trying to figure out where we're going to eat, and some guy thinks I'm playing Pokemon, and so he comes up to me, and I was like, hey, what are you getting? What are you getting? I'm like, I'm trying to get some food. What are you getting? (laughs) Good grief. What's your consuming passion? Let me ask you this. If you were to take one or two of your greatest passions, some of the things you're most interested in in life, things that you get excited about, if you were to place them on a scale and weigh them against your passion for God, which which would be of greater worth or value to you in your own heart? Your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, our heavenly Father longs, longs to be our consuming passion. God wants you and I to get excited about Him. King David had a consuming passion for God. And in Psalm 27, he says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. 
And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. David was passionately consumed with seeking God. What is the one thing that you and I should seek as Christians? What's the one thing above all else that we should get excited about in life? It's God. It's our relationship with God. Our hearts should cry out like David's, seek his face. Now, I'm not saying you can't have any other passions. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you can't have anything else in life that you get passionate about or that you're excited about. But I am saying this. I think this is safe ground. All of our other passions in life, everything else we get excited about in life, should ultimately feed into and in some way be leveraged toward our passion for God. Because when we place all of our other passions on the scale and compare them to the value and the worth of God, all of them pale in comparison. All of them pale in comparison. Don't allow, don't allow the things that you're passionate about in life to be of greater worth or more value to you than your passion for God. The Father is worthy of being your and mine, your and my consuming passion. Let's look back at Jesus again, and this time in John chapter 5. You want to flip over to John 5. Again, Jesus travels up to Jerusalem, and while there, he heals a paralyzed man. But he does it on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they don't like this. They confront Jesus for healing on the Sabbath because that was a no-no. And in response, Jesus basically says, listen, my heavenly Father is the one who's working on the Sabbath. I'm only doing what he's doing. Jesus said, listen, I healed this man because God told me to heal the man. I only do what I see my Father doing. And then here's what he goes on to say in verse 19. Watch this. Jesus gave them this answer, John 5, 19. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. I want you to imagine with me uh, a, a young man in his early 30s. I want you to pick a real person, somebody you know, okay? A guy in his early 30s. Maybe it's a brother of yours or a friend or something. Now, I want you to imagine you hear this 30-year-old friend of yours say or maybe text you this statement. I can't do anything by myself. I can only do what I see my dad doing. Whatever my dad does, that's what I do. Now, if you hear this 30-year-old man say this or text this to you, what are you going to think? You're going to think, this guy needs to get a grip. He needs to grow up. He needs to get a life. He needs to move on. He needs to be his own man, Right? That's why this statement in John 5, 19 so amazes me, the statement that Jesus makes. Because in this one statement, Jesus reveals that he is totally dependent on his heavenly Father. Now, Jesus has a will of his own. Jesus is his own man, but he realizes in his humanity that he must submit his life and stay connected to and dependent on his Father, that his Father is his source of his life. So he willingly chooses to live in dependence on his Father. Now, this is a challenging idea for many of us, especially in American culture, because we so value independence, because our independence is of great worth to us. But Jesus never sought an independent, autonomous life. He never sought to live life separate from his Father. He never lived independently of his Father. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, says this, Jesus was the most dependent human being who ever lived. Wow. Well, if that's true, that has significant implications for your life and mine. Listen, there is something in each of us. Isn't this true? There's something in each of us that doesn't want to depend on or rely on anyone for anything. We don't like asking for help. 
We resist any feelings of helplessness at all. We don't like to acknowledge our need and our helplessness because we value our independence. Our American John Lane mentality is of great worth to us. We say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the reality is, the Bible teaches that in our fallen nature, in the brokenness of the world, because of sin and death entered in because of Adam's sin, by nature we are very needy people. So I want to remind you this morning, don't allow independence to be of greater worth or value to you than depending on God. And here's point number two. The Father is worthy of your desperate dependence. The Father's worthy of my desperate dependence and yours. Is there any, is there any area of your life right now where you are just stubbornly doing your own thing? You're stubbornly dealing with the circumstances on your own instead of going to God for help. Do you need to go to him, acknowledge your need, confess your helplessness, and depend on him? Do you need to come to your heavenly father this morning and say, like Jesus, Father, I can't do this by myself. I need your help. Is there a decision you've been trying to make? And you've been trying to make it on your own instead of seeking wisdom from God. Is there a wound? Is there a wound in your heart that you've been nursing all on your own? Bring your need to God. Admit your helplessness and allow him to help uh, allow him to help you. Depend on your heavenly father. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety, cast all your cares onto him because he cares for you. Last fall, I was uh, spending some time alone in prayer early one morning, and I was telling God that I wanted the kind of relationship with him that he wanted with me. I told him, I want to relate to you the way you long to, re to relate to me. I, I, want us, I want us to have that kind of relationship that that you, you designed us for, designed me for. And so I posed the question to him. I said, what's my first step? What's my first step to have the kind of relationship that, I, that you long, long for me to have with you? And about that time, my middle child, our daughter Zoe, woke up and started crying. And so uh, my wife and our other kids were still asleep, and so I hurried to go get Zoe, and I brought her out with me. And as I was carrying her, kind of holding her close, her head resting on my shoulder, I heard my heavenly father's voice. Now, I, didn't, I don't hear this clearly all the time, but I heard it, heard it very clearly that morning. He said, Kevin, let me take care of you. Let me take care of you. What's the first step in relating to God the way he longs for us to relate to him? By coming to him like a child and allowing him to take care of us. In the New Testament, God is referred to as a father who takes care of his children. He's also referred to as a shepherd who takes care of his sheep. He's also referred to as a gardener who takes care of his garden. You think God wants to take care of us? Yes, he longs to take care of you. And so maybe this morning you need to make the decision to stop trying to do life on your own, to call out to God, to cry out to him for help. He is worthy of your desperate dependence. Jesus modeled a life of dependence for us. And one of the reasons why Jesus modeled uh, and was so dependent on his father was because he wasn't living for his own agenda. Let's look at another statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 5. This is verse 30. John 5, 30, Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. Once again, he expresses his dependence on his father. And then he goes on to say, I judge only as I hear, for my judgment is just. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I want to draw your attention to that last phrase. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me, Jesus said. Jesus never lived independent or separate from his father, and we see why in this verse, because we see the motivation of his life. 
What's the motivation of his life based on this passage? To please his heavenly Father. The word for seek here is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. Some of you have heard me share this before. It's the word zeteo. Jesus says, I zeteo not to please myself, but him who sent me. And the word zeteo means basically uh, to strive after or to aim at. What are you striving after? What is the aim of your life? If we could take a scope and place it on your heart and look through it, what would, the, what would, what would your heart be aimed at? What's the target or the bullseye of your life? Now, the NIV translates that last phrase, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. But the ESV translates that phrase, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, as a tale, not my own will, but my Father's will. And a little bit later, in John 6, 38, Jesus says this, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. If you were to put a scope on Jesus' heart and you were to look through his heart, you'd see that his life was aimed right at his heavenly Father. That Jesus' life was all about seeking and living for his Father's will and his Father's agenda. Whose agenda are you living for? Your life and my life are part of a much grander plan. Our heavenly Father has an agenda, and it's a good agenda. He has good plans for you and for me. He has good purposes for us. And we would do well to follow Jesus' example and seek not to do our will, but to live for our Heavenly Father's will and agenda. And that's point number three, if you're keeping notes. The Father is worthy of your undivided agenda. He's worthy of your undivided agenda. I think most of us would say, yeah, we want to do God's will. We're trying to discern what our Father wants for our lives. We're doing the best we can to honor Him with our lives. That would be true of me. But what's also true of me is this. Most of the time, my agenda is divided. I want God's will, but I want my will too. I want to accomplish God's plans, but I have some plans of my own. And I think most of the time, I walk through life hoping my agenda and God's agenda will somehow merge one day. Does that sound familiar to you? My plans are of great worth and value to me. And what I need to be reminded of this morning, and maybe you do too, is that our Father is worthy of our undivided agenda. I mean, I have a vision for my life. I have plans for my wife and my children. I have things I want to accomplish in ministry. But when I place all of my plans and my agenda on the scales, they are of little value and worth compared to God's plans. Trade your plans in for God's plans. Seek to do His will and not your own. Let's look back at Jesus, this time in John 8. At one point in his ministry, in John 8, Jesus is again. He's up at the temple courts in Jerusalem, and this time he is teaching. And once again, some people confront him, and it gets a little bit ugly this time. And they accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. In fact, they basically call him a Samaritan devil, which for a Jew would be like a double insult. I mean, you call a Jew a Samaritan, that's insulting and rude, and then you call him a devil. I mean, this... This, this insult is so dishonoring to anyone, much less to Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in response. Look in John chapter 8, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In this moment... While they're insulting Jesus and tearing him down, instead of defending himself, I want you to notice what he says there. He says, I honor my Father. 
I don't seek glory for myself. I seek to glorify my Father. Jesus could have pointed to them all kinds of reasons why they were wrong and why he deserved their honor. Instead, what's he do? He humbles himself and he exalts his Father. See, for Jesus, bringing glory to his heavenly Father, bringing attention on honor and praise to his Father was of greater worth and value to bring, than bringing glory to himself. A few verses later, Jesus goes so far to say, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. And then a few chapters later in John 12, Jesus says this, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. His Father responds and says, I've glorified it and will glorify it again. I just look at that prayer. Father, glorify your name. That was, that was the prayer of Jesus' heart. Father, glorify your name. That, sh- that was Jesus' prayer, and that should be our prayer as well. We would do well to follow the model of Jesus and pray this for our lives. Pray this for your family members. Pray this for your spouse. Pray this for your children. Pray this for your disciples. Pray this for your loved ones. Pray that God would glorify his name in their life. What a great prayer to pray for someone. Now, the emphasis in that, for me, the convicting emphasis, is glorify your name. Because I'm, if I'm honest, I, I, I'm constantly fighting against the temptation to bring glory and attention to my name. I want to bring honor to my name. If I do anything of value, I want credit for it. Husbands, who can relate to me? If I take out the trash, I want some credit for it. I mean, don't you want some credit for just taking there? Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Like if I do the dishes at night, I mean, that's like, like my, my wife spends all day long with the kids and then she cooks this amazing meal. And then all she asks is, that, okay, will you do the dishes for me? Yes, I'll do the dishes. I can do that. I can do that. But then every time I get done doing the dishes, like, I just want her to go. I just, wa- I just want her to say, boy, thanks for doing the dishes. You did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted you to notice. I wanted you to notice that I am just like the husband of the year because I did the dishes. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Same thing is wrong with you. <laughs> we want glory. We want honor. We want attention. We want some credit. If I do something at work. If I present an idea and that idea gets implemented, I want credit. I I fight against these temptations. But if I were to put all my valuable efforts on the scale, if you were to put all of your valuable efforts on the scale, they would pale in comparison to the worth and the value of God. The Bible says our righteous acts are like filthy rags when compared to the righteousness of God. And so what do we do? Well, we give God all the glory and all the credit and all the praise and honor. That's point number four. The Father is worthy of your glorious praise. Listen, regardless of what's going on in your life right now, and I want you to know, I know some of you are hurting. I know some of you are struggling right now in your life. I know some of you are discouraged. I want to encourage you to give God your praise. My wife, Paige, and I recently received some really sad news, and without going into details, I'll simply say this. Our hearts are broken right now. And even this weekend, it has been really hard to have a good attitude and to not be depressed. And so we've been talking about this for the last several days and the last week or two. And Paige knew I was preparing for this message, and she's, she texted me this statement. She said, you know, in the midst of painful or difficult circumstances, when we praise God, it is a spiritual declaration to stand up and testify that God is worthy in plenty and in want, in joy, and in sorrow. Isn't she wise? He's worthy of our praise, even in the midst of our pain. Psalm 69 says this, 
69.30 says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Regardless of what's going on in your life right now, I want to encourage you to sing praise to God and give him thanks for who he is and, and what he's done in your life. He's worthy. Your father's worthy of your glorious praise. Your father's also worthy, point number five, of your loving obedience. He's also worthy of your loving obedience. By now, you've heard us use the phrase, obedience is God's love language. That's a phrase that we uh, quoted from author Dan Spader in a a book called Walking as Jesus Walk. It's a tremendous Bible study on the life of Jesus. If you've never studied it or you're looking for something to study, I encourage you to pick it up. But in it, Spader points out that even a surface-level study of Jesus' life will reveal that he was lovingly obedient to his heavenly Father, that obedience was a priority for Jesus. And in John 12, once again, people are confronting Jesus. He struggled with this his whole ministry. And this time, it was because of what he was teaching. And in response, he says to them, John 12, verse 49 and 50, For I did not speak on my own. I didn't speak on my own. You hear that dependence on the Father there? But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus only taught what his father commanded him to teach. And a little bit later in John 14, 31, Jesus says this, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. See, Jesus loved and treasured his father and he expressed that love through obedience to his father. And we should too. If God's calling you to step of obedience right now in your life, obey him. Walk in obedience. Do what he's asking you to do. He's worthy of your loving obedience. Jesus walked in obedience all the way to the cross. You know, it was in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus cried out for another way. He cried out for a different option. But then he says, out of loving obedience to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. That Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life. He gave his whole life. He died so that you and I could have life. And do you remember the last words that Jesus ever uttered? The last words of your Savior and mine before he died on the cross? It's in Luke 23. Jesus spoke these last words. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my whole life into your hands, Jesus says. See, the father was of such great value and of worth to Jesus that he was willing to entrust his whole life to him. And yet again, the same is true for you and me. It's point number six. The truth is the father is worthy of your whole life. He's worthy of your whole life. He's worthy of my whole life. That God is worthy of your consuming passion. He's worthy of your desperate dependence, of your undivided agenda, of your glorious praise, of your loving obedience, that God is worthy of your whole life. And maybe you're sitting here today, you're sitting here this morning, and the truth is you've never entrusted your life to Christ. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to him, but you're ready to do it today. Maybe today you're ready to cry out with a loud voice like Jesus, Father, I entrust my whole life to you. If that describes how you're feeling right now, I want to encourage you, say that to Jesus. Tell him right now in prayer. And then I'd love to talk with you after the service is over. After the service is over, I'll be standing down front. If that describes you, if that describes a prayer that's on your heart, come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you and to pray with you and encourage you. 
And for the rest of us, I'll leave you with a question and a challenge. And the question, once again, is this. Is God the greatest treasure of your life? And the challenge is this. Allow nothing in your life, allow nothing in your life to be of greater worth or more value to you than God. This is what Jesus modeled for us. This is why we worship Jesus. And we're going to move into a time of communion here. You know, it was at the Last Supper on the night he would be arrested when Jesus said to his disciples, when you eat the bread and drink the cup, do it in remembrance of me. And that's why about once a month here at Genesis, we take communion as a church family to remember what Christ did for us, that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we move into a time of communion, let me give you a couple of quick instructions if this happens to be your first time here, first time taking communion with us. They're gonna pass some trays and pick up a cup, and there's two cups stacked together. On the top cup is juice, on the bottom cup is a cracker. We're gonna play a song, and during that song, you may, you may eat the cracker and drink the juice and whenever you're ready. And as you do so, I want you to reflect on this passage, Romans 5, I mean, Revelation 5.12. Revelation 5.12 says this, In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. What's interesting is this passage, is the context is when it reveals what's happening around the throne of God, that all of heaven worships Jesus, saying, worthy is the Lamb, because it was his death on the cross that paid for your sins and for mine. It was his death on the cross that made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six six says this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this club, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is going to return. All of our lives end in the same spot. Either A, we will all die and face Jesus, or B, Jesus will come back before we die. Either way, everything ends the same for all of us, facing Jesus. And can I tell you this this morning? The moment, the moment you and I face Jesus, it's going to be very clear that there was nothing, there was nothing on earth that was of greater worth or more value than Jesus. He is the greatest treasure. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this time of communion, we give you thanks and praise for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you did on the cross for us, Jesus, but we also proclaim your death until you come. Lord, help us to live lives here on earth worthy of you. May our lives here on earth reflect that you are our greatest treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.